0: Well, if we turn for our second reading in God's Word to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10 and verse 25. Luke, chapter 10, verse 25, and the section of Luke that contains the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let us hear once again the living Word of the living God. And behold a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out to Denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Amen. May God bless to us his word. Well, this parable is probably one of the most well-known passages of Scripture. The language of the Good Samaritan is still known and heard outside of church circles. If we receive unexpected help when we are in great need, the source of that help is often called a Good Samaritan. But if this parable sits in our cultural frame of reference still, then it's a parable that is terribly misunderstood. Because if you were to ask a non-Christian, why do we have the parable of the Good Samaritan? Or if you asked a more liberal church, why do we have this story in the Bible? Then the answer would be something like this. Jesus is telling us that we should spend our lives helping those in need. And we should see that those on the margins of society, like the Samaritan, are often closer to God than religious people. That is the message of this parable. Do good, be kind, help people. And that is the core message of Jesus. Doing these things makes you a Christian. But while the parable indeed tells us these things, that is not why Jesus gave us this parable. Instead, Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan to show us that while we should be kind, that while we should do all that we can, we cannot do that to the standard of God demands. Jesus gives this parable to tell us that being good and kind can never lead to eternal life. This parable is here to show us we need someone and something else beyond ourselves to get to heaven. The parable of the good Samaritan is there to say to all of us, you will never be good enough in and of yourself to inherit eternal life. You need Jesus Christ to be saved from your sins and you need to receive heaven as a gift of God's grace. And in doing that, in finding Christ, yes, you will receive the grace to love your neighbor more. And to see all of that, we need to set the parable in its context. And if we look at Luke chapter 10, we see at the start of this chapter that Jesus sends out his disciples to proclaim, verse 9, the kingdom of God has come near you. And Jesus emphasizes that the most important thing in the world is how we respond to that kingdom message. Because verse 12, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town that rejects the kingdom gospel. And then Jesus' disciples return from the mission trip that Jesus has sent them on. And they are rejoicing at what has been Done. They are rejoicing principally in the great miracles that have been wrought. Things that would have brought healing and other such things. But then Jesus says to them, that's good, but it's not the main thing. Verse 20, don't rejoice in the physical things that you have seen. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It is salvation that is the main thing. And then Jesus in public prayer goes on to give thanks for those whose names are written in heaven. Noting in his prayer, verse 22, no one knows the Son except the Father or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus there in public prayer is saying, it is knowing me that reveals your names are written in heaven. It is knowing me that is the great thing in life, because salvation is found not in things, but in me. I am the one who brings eternal life. And following that great public prayer of Jesus, we have the incident surrounding the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so having that context of Jesus teaching on salvation, let's turn to the parable of the Good Samaritan, verses 25 to 37, under three headings. First, how do we inherit eternal life? Verses 25 to 28. Second, who is our neighbor? Verse 29 to 35? And then finally, can we go and do likewise, verses 36 to 37? How do we inherit eternal life? Who is our neighbor? Can we go and do likewise? First then, how can we inherit eternal life? Having heard Jesus tell his disciples that the main thing is knowing him, not miracles of healing. Having heard Jesus thank his Father that only those who know the Son have eternal life. Having heard these things, verse 25, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in those days, a lawyer would have been an expert in the law, we might call him today a, a theologian, a professor of theology. And so we have this biblical law expert come to Jesus to test him and to find out from Jesus what he thinks someone has to do to be saved. Now, there's nothing wrong per se with testing anyone's claims. Need we're told 1 Thessalonians 5, test All things hold fast what is good. And there's certainly nothing wrong in asking, what must I do to be saved? Indeed, that's the best question any one of us can ask. It's our greatest need to be saved. And certainly we're not going to be saved without doing something. But there is a problem with the lawyer. It's not that he wants to test claims. It's not that he asks, what must I do to be saved? It's the underlying posture of his heart in which he asks these questions. He's not a humbled sinner, recognizing that he needs something outside of himself to inherit eternal life. He is self-righteous. And he's asking this question of Jesus thinking that he, the lawyer, knows what must be done to be saved. But based on all this recent talk of Jesus, he's not so sure that Jesus knows the right answer to the question of what we must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus, after all, seems to be suggesting that it's knowing him that gets people to heaven, not us doing stuff. And as the great pastor Jesus knows that when he's receiving this question, he's dealing with a sincere but proudly self-righteous man. He knows he's dealing with someone who doesn't realize that he is spiritually sick. He knows he's dealing with someone who doesn't think he needs the great physician. And so Jesus doesn't give the answer to the lawyer's question that we might expect. How do I inherit eternal life? Well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Instead, Jesus knows there is a law work that needs to go on in this lawyer's life. The lawyer needs to be shown that he is a sinner who needs a savior. And Jesus begins to try and unfold and expose the sin in the lawyer's heart by turning the lawyer's own question back on him. And we have that verse 26. Jesus responds to a question with a question. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Lawyer, you're meant to be a theologian. You're meant to be a professor of theology. Surely you can answer your own question reveal to me your thoughts on how you think someone inherits eternal life. And for us all, it would be good if every single one of us revealed our thoughts on how we inherit eternal life. If I went around every single one of you and said, how do you inherit eternal life? Well, I would hope that the verbal response would be good. I'd hope that the answer from all of you would be verbally, we believe in Jesus and he saves us. But really and truly in our hearts and in our lives, do our lives show the confession that we are saved by someone else? Or does the fear And the doubt in our lives suggests as if we are living on the basis that our works take us to heaven. Not just verbally, but really, truly, what is written in the law. How do you read it? Well, the lawyer gives his answer, verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And... Your neighbor as yourself. Words that Jesus himself used in the Gospel of Matthew. The lawyer has understood the law correctly. He knows Deuteronomy 6. He knows Leviticus 19. He knows that these two statements, to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves, summarize the Ten Commandments and all the teaching of the law. The lawyer is saying, in essence, to inherit eternal life, I have to keep the law. Jesus, perhaps surprisingly, goes on, verse 28. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And it's important we understand what our Savior is doing here. There are indeed two ways to inherit eternal life. One is through perfect, entire, and perpetual obedience to the law. That is the way Adam and Eve would have inherited eternal life before sin came into the world. Doing God's commandments, Adam and Eve would have lived. And it remains true that to anyone who keeps God's commandments perfectly, they will live. But the other way of salvation, the only actual way of salvation for sinners, is to cast themselves on the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ, in beholding Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But the lawyer is still not ready to hear that other way, to embrace that other way. He needs to understand, first of all, that the way of do this and live is closed to him. And what Jesus, in effect, is saying is this, lawyer, you came here to test me, now I am testing you. I am holding the mirror of the law up to your face. I am saying to you, do everything that is in here. Do all this and eternal life, lawyer, it will be yours. But unspoken, underlying Jesus' words is this warning. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. And that takes us on to our second point, verses 29 to 35. Who is our neighbor? instead of being humbled by this demand of do this and live, instead of realizing that way is closed, the lawyer presses on, instead of acknowledging this is impossible, we read instead verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The sin of self, justification is a deep-seated sin in many lives. Our faults are not our faults, they're caused by others. And the faults that we do have, they're really not so bad after all. And there's a two-fold reference, I think, in, in this lawyer in his quest for self-justification. On the surface, there's this need to justify the kind of embarrassing dialogue he's just had with Jesus. He's asked a question to test Jesus, and there's just been a very simple and quick agreement. So what was the point of his question? The test has failed, and he needs to justify the test he gave Jesus. But underneath that, surely there's also the self-justification of a conscience that's beginning just a little bit to sting. Have I really done all this? Have I really performed the duty of loving my neighbor as myself? I need to quieten that conscience down and engage in some kind of self-justification. And so he asks, who is my neighbor? And that in part is driven by the exegesis of Leviticus 19. In the bit of Leviticus 19, we read The command to love your neighbor as yourself. But what went before that? You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor. So it might seem that the neighbor whom we are to love is the sons of your own people. But then further on in Leviticus 19, verse 34, there is the command, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native who is among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. So Leviticus 19 actually says we're not just to love the sons of our own people as ourselves. We have to love the foreigner, the stranger as our neighbor as well. Well, which is it? How are we to understand who our neighbor is? And to justify himself, no doubt the lawyer is looking for the narrow answer. It is the sons of my own people who are my neighbor. And again, Jesus doesn't simply answer the lawyer's question. He turns the question back on the lawyer. But before he does this, he tells a story the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the story is very challenging and in many ways quite surprising. It begins with a setting that will be familiar in Jesus' time. The man is robbed and beaten on the notoriously dangerous 17-mile journey between Jerusalem and Jericho. And having been robbed and beaten, he is stripped and left to die. And all the details are important, but just to say, why is it recorded that he was stripped of his clothes? Because clothes revealed your social status and which part of the land you came from. Without his clothes being on him, there was no way to know whether this man was rich or poor or somewhere in between. There was no way to know whether this man was worth saving if you divided society up that way. But then things look up for this poor half-dead man. First, a priest appears. But when the priest sees the poor man lying, beaten and bleeding, he refuses to help. Verse 31, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Here is a man whose calling in life is to offer sacrifices of mercy in the temple. And when he sees someone in need of mercy in real life, he keeps as far away from him as possible. But then things look up again. A Levite appears. And the same scenario repeats. Verse 32, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Here again was a man involved in the worship of God. Perhaps a musician, a a gatekeeper, a guard, or a temple official. And when he sees a bleeding man, he too refuses to help. And our Lord is showing two great representatives of the religious elite of his day, leaving a poor man to die. And again, the details matter. They're going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And that suggests they've just finished their formal leadership activities in the worship of God. They're just going back from having offered or seen the sacrifices offered. They've just gone back from singing perhaps Psalm 105, that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, good to all that he has made. And in that context, they still refuse to help. I'm sure these men had their excuses. Clearly the place is dangerous. A man has been robbed and beaten here. If I'm going to stay here, there's a risk that I too might be robbed and beaten. Perhaps they think it's costly and time-consuming to help this man. You know, what can we do on our own? We're going to have to go and get someone else, bring them back. It's going to be costly. I've got work to do when I get back home. No. Or maybe they're worried about ceremonial uncleanness. If this man dies and we touch his body, we can't work for a while, it's not going to be great, is it? But whatever excuses might have entered their minds, they have refused to help a man in need. They have failed to love their neighbor as themselves. And while... You know, the circumstances in our lives probably weren't as extreme as this. As religious people, surely we are all convicted by times in our lives where we have failed to help a neighbor in need. But the story goes on. Another character enters the scene in verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. Now this third character is not respectable by the standards of the Jews. Priests, Levites, they, they are good people. Samaritans, on the other hand, were worse than Gentiles. Quasi-Jews, half in, half not, defilers of the true religion, rejectors of Jerusalem worship, rejectors of the Levitical priesthood, twisters of scripture having their own version and rejecting other books. And there's a history of long antipathy between Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans opposing the rebuilding efforts after the return of the Jews from exile. And all of that is the background to John 4.9. Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. So there's this hated figure of a Samaritan who enters the story, and what will this Samaritan do? You know, surely he's going to be worse than the priest and the Levite. But no, not at all. Verse 33. When he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion and emotion so often associated with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This Samaritan is moved by the scene that is before him. The bruises, the blood, the helplessness. Mercy and compassion fill his heart. And having that right heart attitude, inevitably, action follows. He treats the wounds and the bruises. He binds them up. He transports the man on his own animal to somewhere he can be taken care of. In verse 35, he pays two days wages to the innkeeper to care for the man. And if that was going to be insufficient, he would cover off any other debts when he returned to the inn. And is this how we hope that we would be treated if we were beaten and robbed? I imagine, yes, it is. This is neighborly love. It is love that notices someone in need. It is love that inconveniences itself. It is love that costs time and money. And it is love to someone who may never pay him back. He is stripped of his clothes. He has no idea whether he is helping the poorest person in all of Israel. And yet he does it. Moved by compassion. And it's a compassion towards someone who not just may never pay him back because of his poverty. It's compassion to someone who may hate him. It's very likely a a beaten Jew who is lying there who would hate a Samaritan. And yet the Samaritan does all he can to help. Here is neighborly love. So... In response to this question, who is my neighbor? We have this story of the Good Samaritan, showing us how costly it is to love our neighbor to the extent God's law demands. We have to inconvenience ourselves. We have to place ourselves at risk. We have to suffer cost to show true love to our neighbour. And we have to love those in all these ways who may actually in themselves hate us. And Jesus here has shown that religious veneer, religious respectability like that of the priest and the Levite does not equate to keeping God's law as it should be kept. They, the guardians of God's law, have failed to honor the God who said, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. And with that story told, Jesus turns again to the lawyer. And this takes us to our third point, can we go and do likewise, verses 36 and 37. Jesus puts the question to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And however unpalatable it is to the lawyer, he can only give one answer to this story. And so, grudgingly, he says, verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. You'll notice he doesn't even name the Samaritan. He doesn't say it was the Samaritan who kept God's law. He just says, the one who showed mercy. And in response to that, Jesus, verse 37 says, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Now, let's remember again the context. The point of this parable isn't to say that if we are kind, we go to heaven. The parable tells us nothing about the salvation or otherwise of the Good Samaritan. We can't make the parable answer any question other than the one which prompted it. It's a specific answer to the question, who is my neighbor? A question from a self-righteous lawyer who thought his works could save him. And the point of the parable is to say, you are to be neighborly to anyone in need. The law says to you, your neighbor is everyone. The law says to you, you are to love all of them as you love yourself all the time. You are to spend and be spent for them. And so when Jesus says, you go and do likewise, he is really saying to the lawyer, you cannot go and do likewise. No one can live up to the standard of love to neighbor that the law sets out. You have not, you are not, and you will not live like this because you cannot live like this. Realize in your self-righteousness that it is impossible to go and do likewise. Looking to the law to inherit eternal life will not save you, it will break you. And that is where this parable is meant to leave us. Seeing the exalted standard of love to neighbor that is necessary to inherit eternal life. We are to realize we cannot be saved that way. One commentator said very well, who is able to offer such mercy to all his neighbors? If everyone is my neighbor... How can I possibly love my neighbor the way God wants me to? If we tried to do this, we would get exhausted by people's problems and grow to resent the claims they place on our love. Neither we nor the lawyer can inherit eternal life by going and doing likewise. The law cannot save us. For by the works of the law, Romans 3, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So this parable says the law cannot save. But it also points us ultimately to the gospel. Because the Jesus who defined so beautifully what neighborly love is, in this parable, is the one person who lived out that neighborly love in a way greater than the good Samaritan could ever picture. Because, you know, you and I, with our inability to keep the law, are not just like the poor man in this story, bruised and half dead. We are dead in trespasses and sins. And Jesus, seeing our need, came to rescue us at much greater cost than the Good Samaritan in this parable. Jesus did not give two days wages so that we might be looked after. Jesus gave his very life. He paid the penalty for our sins and the wages of sin is death. Jesus Christ as the greater than the good Samaritan bore God's wrath against our lawbreaking for us so that he might say to us when we are burdened over our sins, not do this and live, but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So the parable of the good Samaritan should leave us not trying to live to inherit eternal life. It should leave us running to the Lord Jesus Christ, finding in him all that we need, including the grace and the strength to love our neighbor better. Because while the point of this parable is not to tell us that we are saved or that we are Christians by being kind. It surely also says to us that as Christians, we should be kind, and we should love our neighbor in the strength of Jesus Christ. Amen.